On this episode of Way Too Interested, we talk to the New Yorker's Helen Rosner about moss. It is not boring. It is fascinating. Come join us, won't you? So your hobby went from borderline to totally obsessive. Gavin's gonna find out how you got way too interested. Way too interested. Hi, everyone. My name is Gavin Purcell, and welcome to Way Too Interested, the new podcast where we talk to interesting people and ask them about a subject they're currently obsessed with outside of their everyday lives. Then the two of us talk to an expert in that subject matter and do a deep dive. It's a show about curiosity, discovery, creativity, and most importantly, pursuing those little things that get stuck in your brain and end up being way more fascinating than you ever expected. Uh, I have in this episode a gem. I, I don't know what to tell you. I was not expecting this to be as fascinating and as interesting as it was, but it really, really is. This episode is about moss. You know it, you love it, you've seen it in your garden, you've seen it on the ground, you've seen it anywhere. Moss is, I, I can't even describe it, it's fascinating. It is very old, it exists everywhere on the planet. Oh, and one other note about this, the expert that we found for this episode, whose name is Mawson Annie, she's a woman from Western North Carolina, so charming, so fascinating, you're gonna love it. Um, before we jump in though, I wanna talk a little bit about my um, guest tonight, uh, the New Yorker's Helen Rosner. Uh, Helen and I have known each other for a little bit of time through my time working at Vox Media. Super smart, very, very funny on Twitter, um, and just a brilliant person, brilliant writer overall. Uh, and I want to give you three quick, interesting facts about Helen before we get started. All right, number one, I met Helen when she worked at Eater, which is an excellent publication at eater.com if you haven't read it. She now works at The New Yorker, also an excellent publication. And she writes all sorts of stuff that has a focus on food culture. One of my favorite pieces she wrote uh, while she was at Eater was nominated for a James Beard Award, and it's a piece on the Olive Garden called Christ in the Garden of Endless Breadsticks. Go read that. Number two, uh, in 2018, Helen kind of became an internet celebrity uh, when she wrote a piece at The New Yorker about how she maximizes the crispiness of her roast chicken skin with a Dyson hairdryer. It's a great article. I encourage you to look that up as well. Um, there was a general amount of internet madness around it. Many people thought she was cooking the chicken with a hairdryer. Not true. But it is a great look into what makes her writing accessible, inventive, and also just kind of the way she thinks. So go check that out. And finally, three, in a podcast that's all about curiosity, Helen is truly one of the most curious people I know. It flows through all of her writing across the internet, but also whenever you talk to her about any subject, it, it, it's just fascinating. She brings up a lot of stuff. And today, as I mentioned, that subject is moss. So without any further ado, let's get to my interview with Helen Rosner. Oh, one quick note. The audio in this episode is a little bit funky. Helen's mic was a little acting up. Um, so please bear with me. Um, we've tweaked it to make it as best as possible, but there's a little bit of funkiness on Helen's mic. All right, enjoy. Welcome, Helen Rosner, to um, Way Too Interested. I really appreciate you being here, especially uh, as this is something I'm brand new at. But I, I really, you were one of the first people I thought about this. And I think it has a lot to do with the stuff that you've written and and how your brain kind of works, at least from the out, from the outside when I see it. So first, thank you for coming. I really appreciate this. This is an awesome thing. And I kind of want to talk to you before we get into your topic, which I have to tell you is one of my favorites so far, because it's one of those special topics, which is like, seems really ordinary, but then the further you go into it, it gets crazier and crazier. So we'll talk about that in a second. But 
Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about how do you get into the decision to write about something that you write about? Because in my mind, what I see the stuff you write about is uh, on the surface, you're a food writer, mm-hmm. but you always kind of find an interesting angle into something or you're finding a different sort of style than other food writers do. So like, how do you decide what you're going to write about on a regular basis? It's it's torture. I don't know. I mean, I think like in some senses, it's like the universal writer's lament where I'm like, I hate writing. Writing is terrible. I have nothing to ever say. This is a nightmare. Why did I get into this? Um, and on the other hand, I'm in like this extraordinarily lucky position where I get to write about anything I'm interested in. And it's a little bit of a sort of feedback loop where I guess I am sort of by accident and also just by virtue of I don't know, the patterns of what I write about and the jobs I tend to have. I'm a food writer. And the more I learn about food, the more interesting food becomes. And one of the things that I really like about food as a topic is that it is a lens to literally everything. And I've always sort of felt like if you sort of break journalistic writing down into its various categories, you have folks like politics reporters and sports reporters and business reporters whose beats have built-in narratives. So, you know, for as much as you might say, like, you know, the horse race approach to political journalism, like, hurts us as a society, which maybe I do agree with, there still are, you know, opposing sides, right? Like, you have two sports teams, you have two political parties, you have a business versus a rival business or whatever it might be, and there's a goal state that is winning. And sometimes the winning is an election, sometimes it's a sports game, sometimes it's getting something passed or enacting change or whatever it might be. But, like, if you're writing about those things, I don't want to say they have it easy, the folks who cover those beats, but they do have a narrative structure to what they write. And with culture reporting, one of the, one of the big differences is that the narrative structure isn't always there inherent to the subject that you're writing about, which is why I think you see so much criticism, like, you know, reviews of books and theater and movies and restaurants and why criticism sort of dominates in those categories. And I'm not a restaurant critic. I write about food, but I'm not a restaurant critic. And that can be kind of, difficult because you have to go looking for the story and the story can't just be, this is my opinion. And sometimes the narratives are really present. It's like a cool person or a thing that's happening or something that has been overlooked or forgotten that needs to be restored. And sometimes you just stumble upon a fact and then you have to try to retcon like an entire universe around a cool fact and and make it worth your time as a writer and your reader's time as a reader. How, how does that stumbling work? Because I'm, that's one of the things I think I'm really interested with doing this and, and my, the way my own brain works is that like, I often find myself stumbling onto many things in the course of a day and something will stick and something won't. Right. And then the thing that sticks, I, I will tend to kind of go further down and then it will go further down and further down. And then it's like whittles itself down over time. Like when you find something that really sticks, how intense does that feeling get? Does it get intense quickly or is it a little thing and then it kind of turns into something more intense later? Both, both at once. I mean, I think there are some things where I go through periodic, really powerful obsessions. Last year, last summer, I went down this weird obsessive rabbit hole of this early 1980s British documentary show about restoring a Victorian era garden using Victorian era techniques. Oh my God, what is the name of it? That sounds amazing. (laughs) It was incredible. It's such a weird, cool show. And like, it's all set to this clarinet soundtrack. And then of course I went down this rabbit hole and learned that the clarinet piece that is the opening and closing music to the show, which is called the Victorian kitchen garden has like had its own incredible life and like clarinet soloists the world over play this show's music to this day. And so I ended up writing about it, which is the kicker at the end of the story that I'm telling in backwards order. But like 
before I wrote about it, the only place I could find it online was this bootleg video site. Like it's not on YouTube. It's not on streaming. It's not on any of the British streaming things. I could basically pirate this show from the eighties that somebody had taped off of scratchy VHS tapes. And I got so into it. And I was talking to a friend about it. And at one point my friend said, you should write about this. And then I realized that the friend that I was talking to in this instance is my editor. And so when she says, you should write about this, she's giving me an order. And then I wrote about it. And and sometimes when I write about these obsessions, it exercises them, right? Sometimes like writing about it gets it out of my head and means I can move on to the next thing. And I think that's kind of the curse of the culture writer is that you have periodic passionate love affairs with subjects or media, and then you just move on to the next and you forget about it completely. But sometimes writing about it just like spurs a deeper and more passionate love because the act of researching a story and seeing other people read the story and have their responses is just like fuel to the fire. So I don't know, it goes all sorts of ways. Do you find yourself going in wild goose chases trying to find answers to these things sometimes? Oh, yeah. Like how often, how, yeah, do they, do they end up in dead ends quite often? Yeah, they do. But I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, this almost sort of half as a joke, but like at least three quarters of my job is just internet stalking. Right. And instead of sometimes <laughs> I'm internet stalking people, but sometimes I'm just internet stalking facts and doing research. And I was talking to one of my former college professors and I graduated from college a long time ago. And when I was an undergrad, I was a philosophy major and I was a terrible student. Like I was really bad at doing the reading. I didn't, we would always have these, I'm sure they had this at, at most colleges and universities where like when you're a freshman, you have this mandatory library training where you like learn how to use the library. And sometimes you'd have a freshman writing seminar that had a research paper and the component, like the function of it was not to learn about whatever you're doing. It was to learn how to research and to do the practice of research. And I absolutely never did any of that. I completely skipped it and flaked out and, and you know, phoned it in. And now here I am nearly 20 years later, 18 years later, and research is the most fun, cool, amazing thing I do all day. And I freaking love it. And I don't understand how I was such an idiot when I was 18 years old to not realize that researching is like this treasure hunt. And then you pull up these incredible, weird little fun facts. And, you know, the recurring thing that I have to say to myself that my editor often says to me is, you know, a story can't just be a string of facts. Um, and it can, I mean, it can, but ideally there's some point or a thesis or a narrative or a takeaway. And I don't know, I feel like... I just want to collect facts all the time. Facts are cool. Uh, they're super cool. And also what I found is since I was in college, I had a similar sort of experience. I remember in halfway through college kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, but the big unlock in my brain was like, oh, I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do. And then the things that I do want to do, I really actually do care about those things very deeply, right? And then it became this thing where everything broadened out. And like I was like, oh my God, I can be super interested in everything. I, I remember... There was a moment and I've been I've been TV, which you know, you know that's my background. And I remember there was a moment when I lived in LA and I'd kind of fallen into working in TV and I was a production assistant and then an AP and then a segment producer on a really terrible show called National Enquirer TV. It was a celebrity journalism show, like the bottom kind of barrel of the Access Hollywood shows. And I had this kind of realization in my brain that's like, oh, you know what? They, they do TV about everything. I could just go work on something that I'm interested in. And it was like, wow. And it was like this really weird moment of just saying like, look, I can pursue this something on my own. And I think that like my goal as a, as a person, not with this podcast, but in general is like to get people to have that realization earlier in their lives. Like as er it would be great for like teenagers or even younger to be like, Hey, guess what? There's a career path in almost anything you want to do. Like you can find a way to like turn that love of something into anything or, or it's like, maybe there's a love that's going to come up in a year from you. And when I say love here, I mean like something you're really interested in and, and just to have people be aware that like, 
it isn't. And that's funny. Cause when you, people say like, you got to follow your passions, it's not really that it's like, there's depth in everything. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's one of the cool things. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no. I mean, I was going to say that I think there's also like, in terms of like how we as a culture communicate to the young people in our culture about, you know, your path forward through capitalism or whatever, there's such a focus on like the charismatic megafauna of careers. So, you know, if someone says, oh, I love music, the assumption is, well, you're going to become a musician. Or if they're not super talented at playing an instrument or singing or writing songs, you sort of gently dissuade them from music. And it turns out that music is a massive industry that has people who do all sorts of things. And the topic that you're interested in almost never has anything to do with the actual skill set of the labor that you do within an industry that is connected to that topic. You know, if you're super into sports, you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to even, you know, you can work in concessions. You can work at a TV network. You can work in sports medicine. I mean, there's a million things you can do that are adjacent to topic areas of interest. But I also think like our interest in topics only gets us so far. It's like the most shallow level of interest. The thing that really propels you, like people who love their careers, people I talk to who are just who find just sort of deep, fulfilling joy in the labor of their life, whether it's, you know, paid labor or unpaid, you know, family or whatever nurturing thing, it's because they find joy in the labor itself. And there are so many different kinds of things. Do you like talking to people? Do you like solving problems? Do you like, you know, going on weird treasure hunts to find strange facts? Do you like watching things blossom over the span of 18 months or 10 years? Or do you need really quick hit dopamine feedback and you have to do micro tasks that take a minute or five minutes or an hour, you know, and that sort of stuff is where you find like really deep, deep fulfillment. Yeah. I could not agree more. Let's get into this. This is exciting. Okay. Um, like Pause. I said, this is a fun one. Yeah. Well, hold on one second. Oh, I'm going to ask you. That's all right. That's okay. This is part of my fun game. I'm playing with this. I'm going to ask you first. I want you to tell me your name and then tell me what you're way too interested in. So it's a pretty clear, straight sentence. And then we'll start it off with that. Okay. My name is Helen Rosner and I am way too interested in moss. I cannot wait for this because I really love moss. And I actually, I will say this. I don't think I understood how much I love moss. And now I really understand because like, it's about paying attention to it for me. Like I had just been not paying attention to it. And then I started to go back in my brain and be like, you know, moss has been pretty present in my life for a very long time. <laughs> it's like a stealth thing. I mean, which is, that's, it's, that's all moss, right? I mean, it's, it's a potent metaphor for so many things. So do me a favor, describe, uh, I, I think 99.9% .9 of our audience would know what moss is, but sure. describe moss, what it is, and then kind of talk a little bit about what your relationship has been to it up until your recent obsession. <laughs> Great. So moss is a plant. It is a member of the plant kingdom. It's a, a large category. I think there's something like 20,000 species of moss. But moss is very special for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it's one of the oldest plants. I think there are three types of plants that are very, very old, and I don't remember the names of the other two, but moss is one of them. It doesn't have roots. It doesn't really photosynthesize in the way that we understand plants to photosynthesize. It doesn't have flowers. It doesn't absorb water. Well, I said it doesn't have roots, but you know, so it, it, in so many ways, moss is defined by what it lacks relative to what we understand plants to be. It doesn't fruit and it's weird and it's super tiny. Like the biggest mosses I think are only a few centimeters high though, as I've learned over the course of my moss fascination, um, the range in sizes of mosses from the very, very tiniest where 
a single leaf is the size of one cell, like the, the leaves are one cell thick, to the very biggest mosses, which are like a whopping eight or 10 centimeters, that size distinction is about the same as the difference between like a dandelion and a redwood. So the range within moss universe is the same as the range within non-moss plant universe. It's just on an extremely tiny, tiny scale. But because mosses don't root and they don't flower, the way that they grow and absorb nutrients and reproduce and seed their spores and all sorts of things is like bizarre and weird and fascinating. And it's, it's all kind of a window into like this micro world. Also, they look really cool. <laughs> I agree. I love, I was going to think of one of my favorite memories of moss is my grandparents had a house and in the backyard they had like cobblestones. And I love the way moss kind of grows between stones. Like there's something very like poetic about it. It's not, I don't want to say weeds are ugly. This is not a weed. This is not a weed hating podcast, but there's something about the way moss fills in space that I find really aesthetically pleasing. And to me, just the pure visual of it is a really a really interesting thing. And that's what I started thinking about moss is like, God, there's a lot of memories I have of looking at moss and not even like, not even thinking about it, but just like, oh yeah, it's been part of my kind of world forever here. And it's, when we bring our expert on later, it's funny because I was talking to her about it and she's like, you know, I live really close to Prospect Park here in Brooklyn. And she said like that the mosses that are there exist like in a lot of ways all over the world. And it is like this incredible species when you dig into it as well too. Yeah, no, it's totally wild. I My sort of awakening moment for moss happened a little over two years ago when I was on a reporting trip to Japan and I had never been to Japan before. And part of my trip included a few days in Kyoto and a friend very kindly connected me with a man who lives in Kyoto who takes people on tours of the city. And he's he was just delightful. And he said he wanted to take me to his favorite of the temples. So Kyoto is full of, of temples. So he took me to a temple called Ginkaguji, which is a beautiful, gigantic old temple, one of the sort of most popular of the touristy destinations in Kyoto, but for very, very good reason. And one of the most amazing things, I mean, there's a million amazing things, but the thing that just smacked me in the face was that the ground through so much of the temple, which is which is largely gardens, was just this unbroken, almost neon green blanket of moss with the trunks of trees coming up out of it. And it was surreal. It felt surreal. It felt like an alien landscape. And at the same time, it felt intensely natural. And there's a wooden fence running around the perimeter of the property of this temple. And at one point, the the, the temple set onto the, the face of a hill and at sort of the high point, right, I, I guess, to describe that, like, there's the wooden fence and you can see the hill continuing to rise on the other side of the fence that marks the edge of the property. And on our side of the fence, the ground is this unbroken, like, chartreuse carpet of moss. And on the other side of the fence, it's just brown. It was dirt because you know, the tree cover was so thick that nothing can grow on the floor of the forest. And and the guide who I, who I was with was explaining to me that the moss here is incredibly special. It's what the temple is known for. And that there's a, a team of something like 50 full-time gardeners whose job is to maintain this moss carpet. And it was absolutely just an eyes going wide moment to realize that I think probably like you, like moss had always been buzzing around in the background of my head. And I thought of it as something that happened sort of spontaneously. It comes up in the space between stones or it creeps along an old wall or it's it's part of decay or it's part of weird wildness. And the idea of moss as something 
that could be intentionally cultivated was mind blowing to me. And then to see in front of me, the effect of that intentional cultivation, which is so fucking, can I say fucking was so crazy. I mean, indescribable how beautiful this looked. It literally looked like the ground was just covered in, in this incredibly thin layer of like undulating velvet. And from a sensory perspective, it was bonkers. And then I spent, I don't know, weeks Googling and reading and trying to figure out everything I possibly could about moss. And it's just like, oh my God. So yeah, what yeah, what are the so you came back from Kyoto? What are some of the things that you did to like <laughs> to open this in your brain? Like what where where do you what and like what are some of the interesting things you learned? Well, the first thing I did was I tried to find a bunch of moss Instagram accounts that I could follow. <laughs> which often when I have these sorts of topical obsessions is one of my first first stops. Um and I actually had a surprisingly hard time finding them, which might speak poorly to my Instagram search skills or to discovery as a process on Instagram. But, you know, I found a handful. There's this Norwegian botanist who collects mosses throughout Scandinavia and has an account that is written in a language that I don't speak and and I only vaguely understand what's happening. There are a couple of Japanese moss aficionados, some professional moss laboratories. There's this product called the Moss Light, which is sort of like a moss terrarium. It's sort of this egg-shaped thing that has an LED light on top, and I can't quite tell what makes it different from other types of terrariums, but it's cool. But the fact that I had such a hard time finding like moss Instagram kind of made me love it more. It felt really secret and really niche and and like it wasn't something that spilled over super easily into social media fandom, which I think is probably true. There's so much intricacy to the care and cultivation and the collection and, and the classification, all that stuff. There's a lot of sameness to it. And that's a lot of its beauty, right? I think that this sort of velvety quality of moss also applies in a more abstract sense where it's very small. It's very precise. There's a huge amount of action and complexity within the smallness. But if you take just the tiniest step backwards, it's so soothing. It's so simple and straightforward and lovely. And I like that. I don't think that it makes sense with like the flash and the craziness of the social media performance, you know, like when people are like when succulents were really hip, it's so weird also to think about like a category of plant having a trendy moment, but like, you know, succulents were super hot and people would post photos of their extraordinary, crazy alien succulents everywhere. And their massive versions of whatever plants that look like they'd sort of dropped out of some Dr. Seuss book. And you can't really do that with moss. It just looks like green and maybe it's a bunch of different shades of green, but it, it really rewards intimacy and proximity in a way that I find really fascinating. And also something about it doesn't distill to Instagram in my mind, right? Because in part, it's what you're talking about. And I think what it, what Annie will talk a little bit about too, is like these fields of moss. When you see a field of moss, it's so different than even that experience of seeing it in cracks. You're seeing this like giant organism that is something that almost is alien in a weird way, but it's a ple- it's like a pleasing alien. Like yeah. it's like when you look at it, you're like, that looks like a carpet, but it's alive and it, it's just beautiful. And there's something about that, which is hard to distill in a photo almost, yeah. right? It's like, it, it, which is a really cool thing. Yeah. And I, that alienness too is, I think, I've, I wrote a story recently about mushrooms, about a photographer who's really into mushrooms and the way that she forages. And of course, I went down my own sort of mushroom and mycology rabbit hole and so much writing about mushrooms, including the story I ended up writing, talks about them in terms of their alienness. And there's a similar 
sort of vein of alien and other when people talk about ferns and when people talk about mosses. And those are some of our oldest species, right? I don't want to say plants because mushrooms aren't plants, but there's there's a fascinating sort of otherness of time travel within that. There's so same with with algae and um, tardigrades, who I'm also I wound up getting really interested in water bears because of moss. I mean, also they're their own interesting thing, but like these things, you know, that predate our understanding of ecosystems that have somehow persisted over millions and millions and millions of years feel super weird to us. And that weirdness is fascinating because they're not actually alien. They're in fact incredibly foundational. Like moss is the plant out of which all other plants grew, except the other two prehistoric plants I can't remember the names of. And yet it feels like it's from another world. And it's not from another world, it's from another time. And we are just tiny humans with tiny brains. And we feel like we understand the universe, but in fact, the universe is greater than we can ever comprehend. And like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I totally agree with that. Uh, Okay. So we're going to bring Annie on soon, who is an expert on moss. What are some of the things that you want to ask her? Oh my gosh. Well, um, I live in a a fifth floor apartment in Brooklyn and I have some outdoor space and I have tried to cultivate moss, but I think because I get a lot of sun and we're high enough off the ground that I have a lot of wind. I've had very little success with the exception of one type of moss, B. argentium, which I am obsessed with because it's it's the moss that you see often in cities because it likes nitrogen-rich environments. This is my favorite moss fact. I feel like I'm giving you a fact instead of telling you things I wanted to ask her. But so this particular moss is the one that grows like in like tree wells on sidewalks and near fire hydrants and things like that. And it's because this moss loves super high nitrogen environments. It's it's all over the world. And what's really high in nitrogen is dog pee. And so the places where dogs pee on the sidewalk, like the shelling points, right, of these trees and these fire hydrants become perfect, beautiful environments for this one particular type of moss. Here's the thing that is so fascinating to me, because I will say one of the interesting things, I have two dogs here in Brooklyn. And one of the frustrating things about walking a dog in Brooklyn is the idea that everywhere you go where they want to go pee, there's a little sign that says, please don't pee because it kills our plants. Why don't they plant moss? That's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> moss would be great all that place. And then the dog pee would help it. Yeah. Well, I have tons of that moss on my terrace, but it's also a super, super hardy moss. But um, but yeah, so I, I would love to know what kind of mosses I can try to cultivate outdoors in a city. I'm also just, I want to know how long it's going to take. I have the dream of the moss carpet, right? And obviously not in my Brooklyn apartment, but like, I don't know if I ever, you know, got it together to get a little piece of land and and sort of create my my pastoral ideal. Like, how much how much time is it going to take for me to have, you know, the moss carpet of my dreams? How far in advance do I need to plan to like roll around on my personal moss carpet? Is this like a five year proposition? Fifty years? Like, do I need to start eating better? <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. All right, great. Um, We're going to take a quick break. And then when we get back, we'll be bringing um, Annie Martin into our conversation. Annie, who goes by Moss and Annie, is a moss expert. And uh, we'll be talking to her soon. Thanks so much. Way too interested. Hey, we'll be right back with our expert, uh, Annie Martin of mountainmoss.com. You're going to love her. She's quite a character. But before we do, normally shows like this have an ad in the middle. And since I'm just starting this show, I'm not going to have an ad. And as I've said in this podcast before, really, this is kind of me making this on my own. And one thing I love to do is share books that I've read with people, especially in this kind of space, because I think that for me, Books open up my brain, especially nonfiction books about creativity or learning or ways people learn. Um, And I I hope you 
like reading these kind of books. If you don't, I think you take a chance on it. Audible is a great key to my success in this space. I read a lot of books through Audible and I think it's a, it's an awesome thing. That's not an ad, but Audible call me. Uh, today's book I'm going to shout out is a book that's by a pretty famous guy. And it's a pretty well-known book. You've probably seen this on business bookshelves, but it's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winner in economics. And this book talks a lot about how we think and how our brains work. And I think one of the keys to creativity, for me at least, has been learning a little bit about how my brain thinks and finding ways to kind of use that different styles of thinking to kind of open it up. I'm just gonna do a quick read off the back because there's so much to go into, but it basically, a groundbreaking tour of the mind that explains the two systems that drive the way we think. System one is fast, intuitive, and emotional. System two is slower, more deliberate, and logical. So it talks a little bit about how those two systems work back and forth. And I, I you know, when it comes to creativity, I am a huge believer in a whole mind philosophy and that you have to kind of open your brain up to many different things. And I think this book does a really good job of kind of giving you the why of your brain, which is much better than having a life where you don't know the why of your brain. If you're letting your brain just run on its own, it definitely needs a little bit of a check from time to time. So anyway, the book is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Let's get back to the second part of our show. Um, I'm very excited to welcome Annie Martin, our Moss expert for this episode. Enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm here with uh, Helen Rosner and our guest now, Annie Martin, um, who also goes by the name Moss and Annie. Um, she is a Moss expert out of what? Where are you in right now, Annie? You're in Western North Carolina, right? Yes, in the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains in Brevard, North Carolina. So, Annie, um, I, I first of all, Helen and I were talking a little bit about how we both I found when Helen picked Moss is like, it was this kind of the eye-opening experience for me because I was like, there's so much history that I have without, with Moss personally, without even thinking about it, but kind of tell me a little bit about how you got into this. What, what is your background on, uh, and how did you kind of fall into the world of becoming Moss and Annie? Like you, Gavin, and perhaps you, Helen, there were times throughout my life when Moss was present. And for many people, it's an unconscious love of this green, quote, moss. But there's so many different species. And that's what fascinated me the most when I moved beyond the generalization of moss is just moss and grows in the shade. And I determined that mosses grew in lots of different circumstances, shade and sun, and some are quite versatile. So I began as a child when I made my first terrarium and hiking in the woods here in the Pisgah National Forest. So I've been aware of them all my life, but my more conscious adult life was when I embraced them seriously and started learning and exploring what the possibilities could be about moss gardens. Because Helen, I was inspired by the Grand Temple Gardens of Kyoto as well. And I will tell you, I was discouraged by my ag agent who said, oh, you can't grow mosses except in He said, you can't grow them. And I was sitting there thinking, well, they sure have been doing it for thousands of years in Japan. And I think we can figure it out how to do it over here, too. And we happen to have um, be at the same plane on the earth around opposite sides of the world. That's where you guys are? Is like you're you're in a nearby kind of like we're at 35 degrees. 
35 degrees north. Uh, although the actual microclimate in Japan is different in that it's an island nation and it gets more humidity from the ocean. But so I decided that I wanted to move beyond the concept of just liking moss when I saw it in the woods, that I wanted to enjoy it in my own garden space. And then I didn't have the patience to wait and let it grow in. I tried it, but it just took too long. So I started intentionally planting mosses. And as I did, I used a, a reference book that was inspiring, but it didn't give me enough information about how to really plant and troubleshoot and which species would grow in different types of conditions. So that's when I decided to make a book. But my, the bottom line, y'all, is that I make moss magic with mosses. <laughs> I was born to be a moss artist. I really am infused with an enthusiasm and a passion for rescuing mosses where they're going to be destroyed and then giving them a new home, either it with me or with some other designated foster parent. I haven't gotten that far in my business, but that's my concept in my head, actually. I want my mosses to live and provide year-round joy for years to come. All right, Helen, it's all, the mic is yours. Let's, let's, you got an expert right here. This is so beautiful. I feel like, I don't know, that little spiel just made me like reconsider my entire moss universe. Now I'm like, I also want to rescue mosses. It didn't even occur to me to like rescue them. And, but yeah, cause they're everywhere and you know, people rip them up and throw them away. I, Oh, and they pressure wash them away, Helen. That's what they're doing in the city. When you see those pressure washers out there, they will be blowing it out of the sidewalks. The landscapers come and put pine needles or mulch and cover them up. People put on new roofs. There's so many urban opportunities for rescuing mosses. It feels so backwards to me. And I, maybe this is one of the things that I want to ask you about, because I think before I started being interested in moss intentionally a couple of years ago, I thought of moss as something that went along with decay. And if something was covered with moss, especially if it was like a human construction, right? Like a wall or a pot. If it was covered with moss, that was a sign of age and disuse. And now I've started learning that moss actually is amazing and it is great at regulating temperature and it's great at holding things together. And I don't know, like where do, where do, where do we start with? Actually, it is a continuum and mosses are the oldest living land plants. So they started the conversation. They broke down the rocks to create the soil. And it took 50 million years before there was a fern or any other plant on our planet. And along with liverworts and hornworts and then their little friend, algae, they were the first organic plants that we had. And they've got lots of lessons to teach us. So that's where wisdom and spirituality come in with the moss experience. But you were not wrong. It may indicate decay. And in actuality, the Grand Temple Gardens of Japan evolved in that manner. When they were neglected and when there were times of warfare, the mosses started to move in. But because of their religious perspective, they embraced them instead of trying to get rid of them. And then it became a sacred task. And so people feel very privileged to be a moss tender 
which is someone that maintains or takes meticulous care of a moss garden. I will say that if I ever get to go to Japan, Helen, I do not want to just be one of those tourists traipsing along the path. I want to somehow get permission to sit down in there and pick those fine needles out with them. (laughs) I can't imagine that they would say no to someone with your passion for moths. Well, they would have a hard time. (laughs) It would be fun. It would be fun. And I can be reverent, too, if need be. So then you hinted at the environmental advantages. Wow. So first off, it fascinated me because I really, at the very beginning, uh, as I mentioned, just thought moss was moss. And I put it in a big generalized category. We didn't we didn't even give it a plural to call it mosses. It's kind of like the word deer. But in reality, mm-hmm. when you see a moss colony, it's composed of hundreds, thousands of individual moss plants, even a small colony that you may find out in the sidewalk of Ceratodon. But they provide year-round green, immune to cold. So when all these gardeners are sitting around pining and whining about, I can't wait for spring to come so that I can plant my garden. Helen, I hate to have to admit it, but I'm sitting back gloating because my moss garden is in its glory in the wintertime because it doesn't have any of those other plants that are distracting from it. Like right now, I've got so many ferns that I can hardly see my moss anymore. I'm going to have to go weed them out. But in the winter, when everything else is dormant, the other types of vascular plants, although I'm very lucky because where I live, native rhododendron and calmia, which is Mount Laurel, are in my yard already. So I do have evergreen components to my yard besides the moss, but they achieve a tonal range of greens that is so fascinating. Light greens to medium greens, dark greens, olive greens, nuances and overtones of goldens. And then the sporophytes, that's when it really shows out with um, jewel tone colors of the, and sporophytes are the little tiny structures that are the equivalent of a flower. That's, and that's how they make little baby mosses, right? Like when a female moss and a male moss successfully reproduce, they put up one of those and it poofs all of its spores out everywhere. Yes, you made that sound so scientific. We could have made it a little bit more exciting. <laughs> you know, that the sperm's going to swim over there and they have an archegonium and an antheridium. Oh. But when I give a psych consultation or a lecture, that's the X-rated part of it. <laughs> and I also mentioned Entodon seductrix, which is a marvelous moss species. And it kind of sounds like it has a sexy name too, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So I live in a city. I live in Brooklyn and I live in a fifth floor apartment and I have a little terrace off my apartment. Like the building is kind of a step pyramid. And I've tried to cultivate some mosses in our flower pots and I have some raised beds and things like that. And I haven't had a lot of success. And I suspect, I suspect that this is due to a combination of being on the fifth floor. So there's pretty high winds and lots and lots of sun. And also the fact that I'm in the middle of the city. So the air quality is not as great as it might be in a forest, but I don't know, where do I start? How do I, how do I make a successful moss garden on a city balcony? 
guess what? There's a right moss for every single place and condition that you could imagine. So let's talk about high winds. When I discuss mosses, I usually explain some of the botanical characteristics because they are so different from other plants. And one reason mosses dry out faster and would be impacted by high winds is that they have no cuticle. And that's a waxy substance that's on top of a leaf. If you think about a rhododendron, it's real apparent with that particular shrub. But they also, most of them have only one cell layer thick leaves. So they hydrate very quickly, but they can dry out quickly. But you can address that issue, right? You want to provide moisture when it's a windy conditions. Now let's deal with sun. There are lots of mosses that are not only sun tolerant, but some are sun lovers. You will find in the cracks of the sidewalk that I've alluded to, Ceratodon purpureus and Brium arginium. I can guarantee you that they're there. Uh, the second one that you said, that's the one that I was telling Gavin about before that loves dog pee, right? Because it likes nitrogen. And so it, it, I was reading somewhere that like you'll see it around the base of fire hydrants because it's a super high nitrogen environment because it's where all the dogs pee. Well, that's actually news to me, Helen, because I haven't noticed any moss liking my dog's urine at all. Um, Brian could be tolerant of that. Some mosses are tolerant of um, toxic waste and very poor quality water. So you don't have to go buy any distilled water. You know, if you have access to a garden hose or can hook one up to your kitchen sink where you can spray your mosses, that would be ideal. And all mosses, whether they're shade lovers or sunlight lovers, will benefit from a consistent regime of supplemental watering. And especially if you've got challenging conditions. All right now, sun. Let's, so we've got ceratodon, we've got Brian. Brian's going to be the one that has little silver tips. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at that fire hydrant next time, see if it has little silvery tips or if it's super dry, it'll look gray. Yeah, that's the that's the one I'm very familiar with. Well, then I'll just tell Redman he has a new option and that that's the only place he can go in my garden. (laughs) Hey, and I have a quick question for you. Yeah, I know this is probably like choosing a child in some ways, but like, is there a special species of moss that you really like, like the best or when you see it, you're just thrilled to see it? Absolutely. You are right. It's hard to pick a favorite, but I do have one. It's Climacium americanum. And it's different from most moss species in that some mosses grow upright in mounds. They're called acrocarps. And then some grow sideways and they're pluricarps. The Climacium has a sideways rhizoid and upright growth. And it starts out like a little baby evergreen tree. And then it grows bigger and it starts to, and it's bright green then. And then it turns more like an emerald green. And then eventually it turns to an olive green. And then it goes into this stage that looks like death warmed over. And I mean, if it was any other plant, you just toss it away and say, forget it. But Climacium is one of the most regenerative of all the moss species. And from a leaf, from the stem, or from even the rhizoid, there can be new growth come. So it's a great one for using fragmentation planting. Plus, it's, it's tolerant of shade or sun. They can handle 
soggier conditions than some species. Some moss species actually do want to dry out. And some will live in very soggy, wet conditions. But the majority of them want just the right amount of moisture. And so that's why I highly advocate supplemental watering when mosses are in landscapes. And even on your, um, I was going to call it a porch or a deck. That's what we would call it down here in the mountains. (laughs) What do you call it? What is it? I think of a porch or a deck as like, ground level and because i'm on the fifth floor i go back and forth between calling it a balcony which is the word I a balcony like yeah well okay. my my deck is 40 feet off the ground so i don't call it <laughs> 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 it could be a balcony <laughs> as well so uh you want to choose for the sun exposure that is the most critical factor in determining the species you'll have the best success with so if you're mm-hmm. getting a lot of sun you need to go with those that are either just plain sun lovers, like the two I've mentioned already, or those that are versatile, such as Climacium, my fave, and Entodon, Atricum angustatum. Well, even some sphagnums can handle a lot of sun, but they require soggy conditions. So you can plan it. You can control. You can't control the sun, but you can choose the right species. If you choose the wrong one, Helen, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> And especially if you're not providing this supplemental watering. And this is not like other plants. They want to have little sips all the time. And so you don't give a long drenching soak because, once again, back to the botany. It's one cell layer thick. It's going to hydrate very quickly. Hedwigia would be another good species for you to use. And it's like a magic trick, Moss. You could entertain your friends with a cocktail out there on your balcony and let it be dry and then take a little mister bottle and spritz it. And literally within seconds, it will turn into these lush green tendrils. That sounds so good. So where do I get Moss? Like if I decide, okay, I want to do this with Hedwigia and entertain my friends do i go online do i like steal it from a forest like what's the move well okay we're gonna go to the last part you said first because that's the most important thing helen we do not ever want to steal from our protected forests and parks right and that means even taking a little bit around here i'm in a major tourist destination and retirement home location so there's lots of construction that takes place And there's always somebody wanting to put a new roof on. And I have gotten over my fear of heights, Helen. And I now climb up on those roofs. Now, I won't go over a 412 pitch, which means just a slight slant roof. But roofs and rocks are where head rigging would grow. So you might find it on a, a, a wall. Now, are walls game in the city? Maybe because they might be subject to pressure washing. And I had somebody in my Go Green with Moss Facebook group who lived in France and no Amsterdam. And she sent this photo of uh, mosses growing on these boulders in a park. And and she didn't want to take them because I'd advise, you know, protected places should be kept pristine. Guess what? Their idea of pristine was to pressure wash the mosses off of the rocks. And the next time she went back, they were naked. Oh, my God. So I asked. That's the best thing. You see a landscaper outside a building maintaining a little garden bed and you see some mosses growing there at the edge. You just say, may I have this moss, please, sir? 
And then you can always give them a cookie. They, they're real well if you give them cookies. But I will go and if I can't find somebody when I knock on the door, I ask a neighbor and then I get the address and I go to the tax records office. But now this is a little different. I am also a licensed plant collector and I carry a million dollars liability insurance policy. So individual home property owners don't have to fear about any danger or any disrupt to me or to their property. And that gives me a little bit more legitimacy. I do say, if you're going to go, you wouldn't believe it. We can, I spy them in all kinds of places. They were behind the lumber yard one time. And that guy, when I knocked on his door, he goes, what, moss? Oh, no, I didn't know I had any moss. I said, well, look right here on this doormat that I'm standing on because it was growing right there, too. And it happened to be uh, that Brian Argentium. Big, big colonies of it that have been neglected for years. He didn't care if I took it. Most people don't care. Yeah. You may see them on the side of the road. That's where they're going to mow them away. So look for opportunities. If you see, if if you're in a place where the development is happening and new construction and you see the bulldozers, that's fair game. They don't care about what's there. They're going to scrape it all away anyhow. Now, where can you buy it if you don't have the opportunity to go out to rescue and you don't really want to go behind the dumpster at the recycle location like I've done before? <laughs> It's not very glamorous when you're doing urban rescues, I must admit. <laughs> One time, I'll, I'll tell you this quickie story, but I was in Charlotte, and it happened to be Easter Sunday. And it was in a, a hillside on a main road at an abandoned restaurant. So the landscape had been neglected. And it was like an Easter egg help for me because they were gorgeous ceratodon colonies and entodon primarily. And I looked up, and this car drove up. And... She got out. She was dressed up, had her heels on, and she was ready for Easter Sunday church service. And she had gone to the McDonald's across the street and bought me one of everything. Coffee, juice, you know, McMuffin. <laughs> because she thought I was homeless over there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And it was so kind of her. I did not have the nerve to tell her that I was going to be in our state magazine, which is the official North Carolina <laughs> magazine, in the next week. I hope she didn't recognize me. Oh, my goodness. So if you want to purchase mosses, you need to think about the ethical standards that the supplier may or may not possess. And regretfully... There is a lot of abuse in terms of moss harvesting that exists in this country, and even big-name suppliers may not use standards that I personally could live with. This is my business, and I'm going to make sure that my mosses are, harvest, are rescued first or harvested sustainably from places where I think they might sometime in the future appreciate them. You know, it's like maybe somebody else on down the road. So I sell them. My online moss shop is www.mountainmoss.com. And I have an exclusive selection of shade and sun moss species that I sell in trays that hold a little over a foot. And then I have moss mats that are six feet by six feet that roll out like green carpets. So that actually brings me to my next question for you, which is that 
ever since I saw this extraordinary moss carpet in Kyoto, I've had this fantasy of a moss lawn of my very own that I can roll around on. And <laughs> right now, living in an apartment in Brooklyn, that's not super viable, I think. We could put you a bed out on the balcony. <laughs> you could make a dark cranium bed, and boy, would that be soft. So, like, if I, if I just buy... If I like, let's say I had a little piece of land, right? Like if I just buy sheets of moss from you, can I just lay them out like a, like a quilt? And like, I don't know, how long does it take for me to, is this a year? Is it 10 minutes to unroll the moss? Like what is, what's the commitment? Okay. If you're going for immediate gratification, you buy enough moss to cover the entire area from the get-go. And there are methods for planting them. For upright colonies, you literally are going to butt them next to each other without gaps in between. For sideways growers, you want to interleaf the edges over, under, over, uh, under. And you're like weaving your fingers together in the, okay. Right, like this. Yeah. Over, under, over, under. So you're, and if you have existing moss, so, so here's one that's already growing and you want to plant a new one in. You would just lift this part up and then start over under weaving it into the existing colony. Wow. Now, after you do that, Helen, you have two important W's. Do you want to take a guess as to what they might be? I think I know because I read your book. Okay, good. But <laughs> <laughs> we have a star student among us here. That was part, again, I didn't mention that like part of my journey was also I bought every book I could possibly find about moss. And over the last couple of years, I've read them all. So it's watering and walking, right? Yes, ma'am. You've got it. Watering <laughs> and walking on your mosses is very important. The same concept would apply when you're doing a terrarium or discard container to be on a balcony and you do it with authority. You're not trying to be gentle with these babies. They don't mind it at all. And so if I can't walk on them, for instance, if I'm planting between the cracks of stones, a stone path or a patio, I'll use a rubber mallet or a hammer. Just get in there. You want the rhizoids to attach to the substrate. Now, with my moss mats, they're already on a substrate. They're already growing on it. So you can pull it off of it. Because you can plant directly on soil, of course, or you can roll out the mat and just tack it in with landscape staples and get six foot by six foot. That's 36 square feet blocks at a time and do big time coverage that way. Is it possible then? So, so that's a way to bring like two pieces of moss together and kind of get them to grow together. Can you start with a small piece and then grow it into your own larger carpet on your own? Will it grow on its own? Okay, you said two things there that are important, Gavin. Is can you start it from a colony and will it grow on its own? But then you said like a carpet. Only sideways growers are considered, quote, carpet mosses or that terrible cuss word they use in the floral industry called sheet moss. Sounds like a bad southern cuss word to me, you know. No way. You're only going to get visible sideways expansion from a sideways grower. Can you achieve a lawn effect with an upright grower if you're wanting to equate it to a grass lawn? 
Of course, your sideways pleurocarps are going to do great. But there are some upright growers like Atricum angustatum maintains a consistent height. So if you want, and oh, I just rescued some yesterday afternoon, and it was so thick and cushiony, but it, and talk about a bed that it would make. Woohoo, it was so comfortable. I took my shoes off and I was just rescuing without any shoes on even, but it was ideal. I feel like, Andy, I have to ask, have you ever slept on moss? Yes, I have. But there's a movie star that lives over in Nashville that got moss, and she likes climacium. She sleeps on it, takes afternoon naps under her apple tree. Oh, that's awesome. Can you tell us which? No, I'm spoiling it. Can't tell that one. (laughs) That's amazing. Like lying under an apple tree on a bed of moss. I mean, that's something out of a fairy tale. That feels like you'd fall into a 100-year sleep. Well, oh, that. One time I had this photographer walk me to take portraits of me up in the Big Ivy community. He had me up at a gorgeous moss-covered tree. And he said, why don't you lay down like you're sleeping up with the mosses? And I laid there. And I have to tell y'all, I'm an active moss fairy. I'm not a Rip Van Winkle. laughter and that's one of my favorite photos is me laying there on the moss clapping my hands and laughing (laughs) because i couldn't couldn't play possum sure uh but it is comfortable with for sure now there are other planting methods that can be used for interim processes if people can't afford to do that much i do encourage folks that want to be diy moss gardeners to be realistic in the scope of their project. Uh, And if you're wanting an entire moss lawn, let's hope you already have a lot of existing moss as undergrowth already there. Because it could, if you're not rolling out my mats, take a long time for it truly to fill in. Are we talking like decades? No, like long time. We're talking like in moss (laughs) measurements. So you would be looking at years maybe for things to fill in. But what's going to speed up the growth? Water? Yes. Walking. (laughs) Water and walking. The more you provide that supplemental moisture, it allows that sperm to get over there to that egg. That's important. But all mosses thrive They look better and they grow better when they're at appropriate moisture levels. Now, you don't want to necessarily keep them soggy, though, because you can drown out certain species. Are there cutthroat moss hunters? Are there people who will like, you know, hop on a jet to some remote region of the world in order to grab a moss that was rumored to be spotted? Or is it more of a collegial group of folks? Uh, Well, when you talked about cutthroats and moss hunters, there is illegal moss harvesting that occurs in this country all of the time. Really? In fact, the majority of those moss suppliers, anything you find dried up in a bag at a craft store or a garden center has most likely been stolen from the forest. And the suppliers don't care where it comes from. I had one from Florida call me up saying, I'm bringing a double tractor trailer up. I want to get moss from you. No way. That is part of my business ethic. I want to protect the mosses. I want them to provide pleasure for years to come. And I sure don't want them to be dried and dyed green and put in the bottom of a silk plant. 
I just won't support floral activities unless they promise they're using them for terrariums. <laughs> and then I might sell to them, uh, but I won't sell to crafters either. Now, show me that cute little bird house with that dried up moss glued on there. That's never going to perk back up again. I mean, that's killing the moss. I want the mosses to live. So I don't have much appreciation for gimmicks. And we can get off on the environmental topic when you want to, but I can tell you there's a lot of exaggerations and generalizations that are out there when these quasi-scientists are trying to provide environmental solutions with mosses. Wow. It all runs a lot deeper than I thought it did. No, this is amazing. Now, within the academic community, it is collegial. And I am a member of the International Association of Bryologists. They're real nice to let just a moss lover like me be a fly on the wall in their scientific world. Uh, but they do exchange specimens for certain studies that they're doing. And I have heard some people say that you don't want to tell where a certain species is that's pretty rare. You know, you don't want to really announce that out because you don't want somebody to go steal it. Is there a dream moss that you have never seen that you're hoping to encounter one day? Well, I don't know. I get fascinated with all of them, Helen. And Talk about getting excited. When I have a spore experience, you can hear me squealing. And I do it every single time. I cannot help myself. You need to look at my YouTube video of Ceratodon papurius. But that's a typical reaction that I have. Um, the, they are microscopic in size. And the only time I really look at them, because I don't, I mean, I only use microscopes out of necessity. I don't have that scientific brain or do I like wearing that hat necessarily um, I have to in some ways but when you run your fingertips across the top of those four capsules and the cloud appears oh it is quite magical now I will admit I was hoping it wasn't going to be as magical as it was for Alice in Wonderland because I thought what if she wasn't eating mushrooms what if she was getting spore clouds happening but luckily, I have had no effects such as that. Oh, I'd like to go back to the balcony briefly. The winter, you do not need to bring your mosses in. Oh, good to know. Your container might freeze and the mosses will freeze, but it will not be harmful to them. I love that about moss. I was saying earlier that one of the things I'm super fascinated about mosses about however that sentence works. One of the things I find super fascinating about mosses is just their extraordinary resilience and that you can totally dehydrate them and then they'll come back to life. You can freeze them, they'll come back to life. And it's just like the water bears, little tardigrades that sometimes live within mosses. And they have just this extraordinary life where you cannot destroy them. You have to really try. Well, you can destroy a moss. The best way is to leave leaf debris on top of it. And of course, obviously, if you're pressure washing it away, that's a definite goner activity, too. But if you leave mosses covered up, that's why, even though you don't need to worry about doing blowing leaves every day, you do not want to leave them on top of your mosses in a landscape for an entire season. Hey, Annie, I have a question. So if you're if you are speaking to people, which you probably are right now, who maybe don't know a ton about moss or kind of have the moss experiences that you've had. What would be like your sales, your sales pitch to them to kind of 
get into it? Like, what is it about it that really drives you and keeps you going in what you do every day? First of all, marketing and sales pitch does not come naturally to me. (laughs) Promoting bosses and extolling their virtues does. And so that would probably be more of my approach. And the biggest If I have a tagline that I have is year round green, you cannot beat it. If you're a gardener, you can still enjoy it. And even if it's too cold to go outside, create visual destinations. Helen, that goes back to looking at the scope of the landscape project and determining. I always advise my clients, if they're DIY moss gardeners, even give yourself a special feature that is fully finished so that you you get to enjoy that immediate gratification. And skirting a tree. Yesterday I did a site consult and they had a, a big stump from a gorgeous spalted maple. I was wondering what they did with that wood. It should have been used by a furniture maker or something. I think somebody burned it. Anyhow, bottom line is that I... They had left this stump there and their deck looked right down at it. And I thought it was the perfect focal feature to start with. And she plopped right down on that ground and we cleared out a couple little angles of where the the stump roots were still showing. And we had pulled up some mosses from her yard that had been uh, dislodged by a critter or something. And I showed her how to use the budding, the leucobrime colonies together, sticking them down in a little knot hole that would be cool. And then how to take some thuidium, which is a sideways grower and interleaf it. And then we cleaned up the weeds and we did that all in like about 10 minutes. And it, it was a great start. And her creative mind started going, what else could she use there? Miniature plants created as a, a fairy garden, put magic into the mosses. I suggested it summer, add some perennials or, or even annuals. Mosses look great with every plant you can dream of. Although there are not only invasive plants, but there are native plants that I consider invasive in my mosses. Oh, yes. So like all those ferns that are out there right now. Oh, so I think of mosses and ferns as like friends because they're so They old. are friends. <laughs> they're friends, but they're not my friend when I can't see my mosses. <laughs> <laughs> now, they do have something in common. They both do reproduce via spores. Now, the spores on a fern are uh, in these little dots underneath the fern frond. But the very first growth stage from the spore reproductive process is this protonema stage and it just kind of looks like little green algae you know it's just like this little film it's it's not distinguishable even hardly as a plant unless you use the loop which is a close-up lens like a jeweler uses or called a hand lens by botanist Uh, you can see the growth but it takes a really long, long years worth of time to grow mosses from spores. And why do that when I can grow them from rescued plants or from fragments that are left over from rescued plants after I tray them up or mat them up? So do you have like a greenhouse? What's your operation setup look like? Well, 
Guess what? A greenhouse is only applicable if you're a human being that needs warmth in the winter. The mosses don't care about whether it's cold. So I grow them outside. Wow. But I determined that in my early phase of I did have a, a cold frame, which is like a, a greenhouse, but it's a hoop house that's covered with plastic and it collapsed in the snow. That was one major disadvantage <laughs> when the heavy snow squashed it down. That's a downside. Yeah. But the mosses don't mind the snow at all. It doesn't hurt them. In fact, <laughs> guess what they do under that snow blanket? <laughs> Get it on. Uh-huh. And when the snow melts and you see those sporophytes, you know they've been up to something and they've been having a good time. I had no idea moss was so horny. Oh, it is. <laughs> I mean, and guess what? Some of the species do it several times a year. You'll have sporophytic displays. So it's not just a one-time option. And because you're looking at colonies with thousands of individual plants, every plant has the potential of doing that at some point. They may not all do it at exactly the same time. I guess you don't survive for hundreds of millions of years unless you figured out how to reproduce pretty successfully. And part of that is that ability to grow fruit through vegetative processes, which is the fragmentation, which is what I call frag planting. And then there is a third way that I better mention real quickly if there's a botanist listening to this podcast. And it's um, where they have jimmy cups and those male cups have propagule balls in them and they splash out when the raindrop hits them or the supplemental watering and they bounce out and they can go make a new plant too. Huh. That's fascinating. Mosses have sex, but they do not have sex with each other. Uh, and they, they stick to their own species, but they do cohabitate together. They live harmoniously uh, with different species in the same colonies. Some can be more aggressive growers and some will be preferred substrates for other mosses. Leucobrium is an upright growing colony. It retains more moisture than most all other moss species. Hence, other ones like it a lot. So you may find an upright growing polytricum coming right out of the, coming out of the top, or you might find a sideways grower that's lilting through. It could be an individual plant, which most people think is a leaf. But you get yourself a loop and you look at that plant up close and you'll see these little tiny leaves that are all there. <laughs> And when you start going into that miniature world and the tardigrades can be fascinating. I wonder how many millions of tardigrades live in my garden or in my mossery. And the, the folks that bought the rock house where my landlords were near my, at my mossery, you will never, well, I guess I've given you a hint. You can guess now. He's a professor. She's the head of the biology department and she specializes in the blue fairy lightning bugs and his specialty Tardigrades. Uh, oh, it's perfect. Awesome. It How rare would that be to find somebody that studies them at all? And he's literally right at the beginning of the street where my mossery is. Oh, that's amazing. Well, hey, you guys, we're going to wrap up now. But thank you so much for both of you for coming in here. Um, Helen, is there anything else you wanted to get out? You feel like you got a pretty full brain of mosses now? Yeah, I, I have a lot to work with now. <laughs> I'm ready to get out into the cutthroat world of moss cultivation. 
well, we don't want it to be cooked. Right. No, sorry. I'm the kind and loving and generous and very thoughtful and very sustainability oriented world of moss cultivation. Yes, sharing, sharing and loving. That's right. Yes. Uh, we do want to encourage each other to be responsible mossers. And a mosser is anybody that likes moss or that actively engages in any aspect of mossing, which is a verb now. And I, I also feel like I should shout out Annie's book. I mean, because I I read it a couple of years ago and it was incredibly illuminating and it's called The Magical World of Moss Gardening. And I've read a bunch of moss books and I think that, that Annie, yours, and then there's a book by Robin Wall Kimmerer called Gathering Moss that I also really love. And I feel like those two together, I've given them as gifts. Like I... I will sometimes talk people's ear off about moss at a dinner party and I know very little about it. So I'm mostly making up stuff, but sounding very authoritative. And then afterwards I'll be like, here are the two books about moss that actually contain facts. Unlike me. Thank you so so much for that shout out. I appreciate it. And I would appreciate it if people buy the book directly through my website, rather than supporting the big box store or the big bookstore, even the corner one. Uh, as a, as a, you may be aware that I didn't get a very good deal when it comes to royalties. <laughs> I'm not aware, but I feel like the world of book publishing is, unlike the world of Moss, very cutthroat. <laughs> oh, it must, be, it must be. And I tell you, whose throat they're cutting is the authors. They're making sure the publisher gets their cut, and they're making sure that the big delivery company that can do everything for free in a day they get their money too, and I get ninety four cents. Is what I get. Oh my god! Annie, what's your? Uh, what, why don't you plug your website so we can make sure we know where to go buy that book at? All right, it's mountainmoss.com. Great. Lots of services, phone consultations, turnkey installations, selection of moss species for sale. I'm the full blown spectrum when it comes. <laughs> to Hey, real quick, Manny, before we go at the end of this, I often ask our experts if they have something that they're super interested in, if they're way too interested in right now. Is there anything that outside of Moss that you can't stop thinking about right now? I'm afraid I'm obsessed with Moss, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that particularly right at this moment in time, it's Fossus reticulata. And those are the blue fairy lightning bugs, sometimes referred to as blue ghost fireflies. What a spooky name. I don't like that name. But they only come out for three weeks each year. And they're teeny, teeny, tiny. They're not like yellow lightning bugs. They don't blink on and off. They blink on and they fly around. And then they might blink off. And I had one land on me and crawl into my hand the other night and it stayed in my open hand for over an hour and it would light up and then it would go dark and I'd go oh Donna I can't tell whether it's here or not I can't feel it crawling and we put on the flat the cell phone and look and it was still in my hand there in my lifeline so I got magic powers from the blue fairies the other night Wow. What a blessing. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Annie, that's incredible. And and Helen, thank you for sharing your uh, your uh, way too interested obsession. And uh, I think we've all learned a lot today. I, this, is, this is definitely <laughs> one that I've learned a ton in. So thanks again. And, uh, and I really appreciate it for, for you guys for hanging out. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for having appreciate us. it. This is like an hour that changed my life. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> 
I've enjoyed it as well, y'all. And have fun mossing in the future. All right, everybody. That's another episode of Way Too Interested. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends about the show. Please talk to people if you like it. Um, I know it's one of those things where, you know, dip into different episodes that are out there. Like you may may like or not like a topic, but please just try them all because I think you'll find things in each of them that's interesting. Um, Shout out to our guests today, Helen Rosner, Annie Martin, both of them awesome people. Big shout out to the Gregory Brothers for the theme song to this show. Thank you to those guys. Shout out to Eric Johnson, who has helped me produce this show on the back end. And mostly thanks to all of you for listening. Please keep listening. I've got about four more of these in this run. But as I've said previously, I'm probably planning to keep doing it. It's been super fun for me, and I hope it's been fun for you. All right, see you next time.